episode of Evidence-Based Radio. As always, you can find this and previous shows as a podcast on your favorite podcatcher or via the website evidencebasederrata.com. I hope everyone is having a good and safe holiday season and is able to get some rest before the new year begins. Unfortunately, today has been rather soggy and miserable, But hopefully the new year brings new and better things. I think we can all agree that this year has not been one of the better ones. And we just need to put it behind us and move forward into a new year. Now, um, I didn't really mean for this to happen necessarily, but I do want to warn you that there is some serious talk in tonight's show. So if you want to avoid talk of dark things right now, if you'd rather celebrate and concentrate on uh, happy thoughts and encouraging things, I am absolutely okay if you save this one for later or even if you skip it. And so that being said, let's start tonight with a bit of public health info. You may have heard about a new mutation in the UK which makes COVID-19 more contagious. It's suspected that the virus mutated in an immunocompromised person and had time to evolve as this patient was not as able to overcome the virus quickly as those who are healthy when they contract it. And so we know that For immunocompromised patients, they can often have the um, virus in their system for a lot longer than other people. And so that gives the virus, unfortunately, more time to uh, evolve. And so, yeah. Now, there is no reason for panic. We've talked about another version of this previously, where a new strain overtook patients in Texas. Once again, there seems to be no indication that the virus has become more deadly, just slightly easier to catch. Now, there is some evidence to suggest that the new strain might be less susceptible to the currently developed vaccines, but vaccines can be tweaked to incorporate new strains. SARS-CoV-2 CoV-2 is mutating at a much slower rate than influenza, said World Health Organization Chief Scientist Sabia Swaminathan at a press briefing on Monday. And so far, even though we've seen a number of changes and a number of mutations, none has made a significant impact on either the susceptibility of the virus to any of the currently used therapeutics, drugs, or the vaccines under development, and one hopes that that will continue to be the case. So the biggest concern is actually that a more contagious version of COVID-19 means an uptick in hospitalizations, which can lead to more strain on the health system, which can lead to an uptick in deaths caused by overtaxed resources. Now, we don't have confirmation yet that this strain of the virus has reached the United States, but most likely it has. Um, We're doing a lot less um, 
genetic testing of our strains than the UK has been doing. So it's likely that it's already here and we just haven't detected it yet. But again, there is no reason for alarm because the new strain is stopped by the same precautions as any other strain. Social distancing, mask wearing, and hand washing. Unfortunately, there has already been an uptick in cases, as you know, here in the U.S., and much of that is due to the cold and people moving indoors, being in closer quarters with poorer ventilation. The best way to avoid becoming infected is, unfortunately, the same as it's always been, avoiding other people as much as you can, other than people that you live with especially if they are also avoiding other people, which hopefully they are. Now, I know that obviously can be hard in a country without robust social safety nets, and it might become even harder as the new relief bill omits the clause that requires employers to pay workers who have tested positive for COVID-19 while they are quarantining by giving them up to two weeks of paid sick leave at full salary. They also stripped out salary protections for employees caring for a relative with the virus and those whose daycares or schools are closed due to the pandemic. It's been confirmed that these were stripped due to the need to please Mitch McConnell. I have so much to say about that, but that's a different, uh, that's a different show. They did extend the tax credit for employers paying paying sick leave until March, but it doesn't require those employers to use that benefit. And even those original protections were weak, as they were only applicable to employers with less than 500 staff, and those with less than 50 staff could file for an exemption. This is all a reminder that the U.S. is the only wealthy industrialized nation that does not require employers to offer paid sick leave and who also does not actually have a uh, state-based single-payer health care system. And it's important to understand why this is always a mistake. People who don't have paid sick leave, and especially those who can't afford to go to a doctor anyways, come to work sick. That's just a fact. We know it. And it leads to the spread of infectious diseases and also adds to the strain of an already overworked healthcare system when they get so sick that they have to end up in an emergency room. And in fact, a study of COVID-19 infections and spending showed that, quote, contagious presenteeism, unquote, appeared to play a significant role in expenditures as sick workers pass the infection on to others. Now, I don't want to spend too much time on this particular soapbox, but it's the time of year where we're supposed to think about helping others. And I think that that's a bit of a farce to suggest that in a country that continually refuses to implement robust social safety nets, that it should be up to the lowest paid workers to support each other rather than using our tax dollars, and especially tax dollars extracted from the wealthiest among us, to support our population. 
the myth of American exceptionalism and the supposed evils of socialism, and the idea that one can raise up oneself by one's bootstraps should not still be holding us back in the 21st century. Okay, let's move on now and talk about some more uh, neutral, if not fun things for a moment at least. Let's Let's start by talking about octopuses punching fish. Octopuses continue to be one of the best among us. I mean, octopuses continue to be smart, but also weird and confusing. New research suggests that octopuses mainly use punching during collaborative feeding events, but every once in a while they do it just because, or more likely for some reason that we don't yet understand. The new paper published in the journal Ecology suggests that most are to, quote, prevent exploitation and ensure collaboration when two species are feeding on the same source of food. The researchers documented eight distinct events where they filmed octopuses whipping an arm out to punch a fish. The events occurred in the Red Sea between 2018 and 2019 at the coast of Israel and Egypt. They described the movement as a swift, explosive motion with one arm directed at a specific fish partner, which we refer to as punching. Now, several different fish were victims, including tailspot squirrel fish, which is now one of my favorite species names, black tip, yellow saddle, and red sea goatfish. Another good one. These multiple observations involving different octopuses in different locations suggest that punching serves a concrete purpose in interactions, according to the paper. Now, octopus and fish are not the only species that hunt together, but it is a relative rarity. In the sea, groupers and eels sometimes hunt together, and actually groupers and uh, octopus sometimes hunt together. Eduardo Sampio, a co-author of the new study from the Max Planck Institute of Animal Behavior and the University of Lisbon, noted on Twitter that octopuses and fishes are known to hunt together, taking advantage of the other's morphology and hunting strategy. Since multiple partners join, this creates a complex network where investment and payoff can be unbalanced, giving rise to partner control mechanisms. So what happens basically is that the fish act as sentinels. They find the prey and basically point to it, and the octopus then will grab it. Usually the prey is among rocks or in coral reefs where it's easier to get at using an octopus's arm. And then the fish and the octopus share the spoils. The punches thrown were used to maintain control over fish behavior, to banish fish from the group, deter them from prey, or in order to move in on prey. One of the, of the eight observed punches, two of those could not actually be tied to one of those specific events. The authors present two hypotheses for those incidents. Either the octopus are just being spiteful, or they may actually be thinking ahead and using the punch to promote collaborative behavior in following interactions. Now, of course, this would require forward thinking. 
which is a yet unproven aspect of octopus, octopus cognition. But of course, we know that octopus are very smart creatures indeed. They can solve all sorts of problems. Um, they do all sorts of weird things like um, my famous and often brought up example of Otto the octopus who used to do things like rearrange the aquarium he was in and juggle the hermit crabs. Um, I still haven't found a video of that. I must track down one. I um, I really need to see an oc octopus juggling <laughs> hermit crabs. Um, so yeah, we know that octopuses do a lot. And um, so it would not surprise me at all if they were of the opinion that occasionally a fish just needs to be punched. <laughs> this is a wider part of the idea that animals have a much larger uh, inner life cognitive range than we have previously thought. Um, this is definitely something that obviously in the last few years, people have gotten a lot more um, savvy to the idea that animals do a lot more than we once thought they did, but especially in octopus and other animals with uh, known higher cognitive processes, it is really interesting to see how many uh, behaviors they share with us, but also we do always have to be careful about anthropomorphizing. So as much as I would like to think about cranky octopuses roaming the ocean, occasionally punching a fish just to uh, satisfy its own uh, ability to con exert control over another being and therefore to uh, make itself feel better. Obviously, that's a very human idea. And so it may be that there is, it's almost certain that there is some other benefit to it other than simply the satisfaction of hitting a fish. Um, not that I am condoning violence in any way, shape, or form, obviously. Um, <laughs> I am not uh, of the opinion that violence is usually the answer. Um, I definitely don't think you should go out and punch fish <laughs> if you're having a bad day. Um, but I think that it's a really interesting uh, new behavior that we have to um, figure out what's going on with, with it, because uh, the more we know about octopus, the more we know about other aspects of cognition, because as we all know, octopus are very, very different um, in their makeup from, say, mammals or other um, terrestrial animals. And so if we can find parallels between their cognitive functions and our cognitive functions and sort of trace how that um, convergent evolution was able to be um, formed, that is a really powerful way of figuring out how um, these processes develop in general. But of course, as with everything, more research and observations will be needed to better understand the behavior. Um, and so, yeah, we definitely have to do more research. Um, we need to 
you know, it might just be that this particular pod of octopuses have developed an odd trait. And if we don't know that others are doing it, then we don't know exactly what's going on. And so I'm all for funding research to watch octopuses um, do weird things. Uh, they are fantastic and uh, interesting and smart and beautiful most of the time. So why not? Okay, speaking of weird animal behaviors, apparently seals are making sounds usually associated with droids from Star Wars rather than animals, and currently we don't know why. The Weddell Seals' calls create an almost unbelievable otherworldly soundscape under the ice. Paul Chico, a visiting professor at the University of Oregon, and lead author of a new study described the bizarre seal sounds in a sound sa saying in a statement, it really sounds like you're in the middle of a space battle in Star Wars, laser beams and all. We won't talk about how the sounds in Star Wars aren't believable, but again, we won't talk about that because it's not part of this story. <laughs> The reason we're just finding out about this is that the sounds are not actually audible to humans. The sounds were captured by a special hydrophone deployed in Antarctica's McMurdo Sound in 2017. Before this work, scientists had catalogued around 34 seal calls audible to human ears. They've now added nine new types of ultrasonic calls to the catalog. The sounds include trills, whistles, and alien-sounding chirps, with some calls featuring multiple harmonized tones. Human hearing is generally between 20 and 20,000 hertz. Most of the new sounds are in ranges from 21 kilohertz to 30 kilohertz, with one high-pitched whistle reaching almost 50 kilohertz, and those harmonized multiple tones could reach over 200 kilohertz. This is outside of the range of the hearing of cats, dogs, and even some bats, which we know use high-pitch uh, sounds for echolocation. And so these are the first ultrasonic sounds recorded from a fin-footed animal, or sorry, a fin-footed mammal, including sea lions or walruses. Chico suggests that the sounds might be bonus conversational elements to, quote, stand out over all the lower frequency noise, like changing to a different channel for communicating. It may also be that the sounds are associated with echolocation, but there is no evidence up until this point that seals might even use echolocation, never mind that they actually do. However, these seals are diving more than 1,900 feet below cold and extremely dark waters, so it may not be outside of the question. Again, more research will be needed in order to figure out just what these weird sounds actually do represent. And speaking of majestic sea mammals, two North Atlantic right whale calves were recently spotted in U.S. waters, just at the beginning of calving season, which can last into April. 
This is exciting because the species is critically endangered, with only around 400 animals currently in the wild, according to NOAA Fisheries. Biologists from the Clearwater Marine Aquarium in Florida spotted the first calf near Cumberland Island, Georgia. Born to 13-year-old Chiminea, who they believe is a first-time mom. The second was spotted in Florida, born to 16-year-old Millipede, and seen swimming alongside bottlenose dolphins. The whales were almost wiped out by historic whaling, and while whaling is no longer a threat, they have remained in trouble due to other human activities, such as entanglement in fishing gear, vessel strikes, and increased ocean noise pollution. In the last few years, they've had a particularly bad time, with 43 dying and 13 seriously injured due to entanglement and vessel strikes. And the first calf found this year actually was found washed up on the shore of a barrier island in North Carolina back in November. With a population at such low levels, every individual counts, and it is great to see these two new calves at essentially the beginning of the calving season, Jameson Smith, the executive director of the Blue World Research Institute, who took photos of the newborn whales via drones, told CNN. However, there is obviously still a lot of work needed to preserve these beautiful and important animals. In order to maintain their population, at least 20 calves a year need to be born. But in the last four seasons, the whales have only birthed a combined total of 22 calves. We really need to do a better job at protecting these and other animals and plants and insects and even microbes uh, that we have driven to the point of extinction through our carelessness and lack of forethought. Um, so again, this is another place where we really need to look at ourselves a little bit uh, more closely and realize that we spend a lot of time doing things that are furthering our interests to at the detriment of other people and at the detriment of our environment. And I don't um, like to talk about this too much um, because I think that it's pretty clear, but every once in a while I like to remind people that um, we are really doing bad things to our planet. And I also like to remind people that the elements that are doing the most damage are large corporations. And so while... If you throw away a water bottle instead of recycling it, that's not great. Um, a lot of the problems that we have with pollution and with entanglements and ship strikes and things like that are because of uh, commercial fishing and because of a lot of um, pollution that's being done by major corporations. And I think fishing is a really fraught subject because a lot of people depend on their livelihoods um, from fishing. And a lot of people rely on their um, food, uh, rely on obtaining their food from the sea. 
And so I think that we, I, you know, we need to have a comprehensive idea of how to manage the seas and we just don't have that right now. And so there's still a lot of illegal fishing. There's still a lot of fishing in ways that we really shouldn't be fishing. And so, um, you know, it really is one of those places where we have a long way to go. Um, before we can really say that we're doing something positive. Um, and so it's always important to remember that we need to do better. And a lot of the way that we need to do that is by holding uh, corporations responsible for the environmental degradation that they are currently um, engaging in. And I think it's really important to keep that in mind and it's great to be better at recycling and to use less and reuse things, you know, reduce, reuse, recycle is great at the individual level. Um, but there's also systematic problems that are much bigger. Um, a lot of the pollution in the ocean doesn't come from first world nations. It comes from nations that are developing, um, it comes from nations where first world uh, nations dump their trash, for instance. Um, and so, yeah, we have a long way to go before we can truly um, say that we are doing better um, when it comes to the environment and to the ocean. And we forget sometimes that beautiful animals that have lived for millions of years um, are often on the brink of extinction because of our lack of will to be better. Um, so yeah, on that note, let's take a break. And when we get back, we're going to talk about space. So please do stay tuned for uh, talk about space. We're going to zoom out and uh, talk about space. It's not going to be all great. I have to warn you, I do want to make a little bit of a statement, but for the most part, it'll be fine. So uh, do stay tuned. You are listening to Evidence-Based Radio. Outbreaks of whooping cough or pertussis are happening across the United States. This serious respiratory disease can be deadly for babies. By getting the whooping cough vaccine called Tdap during the third trimester of each pregnancy, Women can pass antibodies to their babies to help protect them until they're old enough to receive their own vaccine. Learn more at cdc.gov slash pertussis slash pregnant. That's pertussis, P-E-R-T-U-S-S-I-S. Table of Contents is a weekly music program that assembles an assortment of songs and sounds of many genres, and which may entail literally taking a random collection of musical sources off the shelf and giving them a turn on the table or spin in the CD or tape player. Each week presenting shows which can at times be organized orderly and at other times perhaps be not as much so, yet never dull. Tune in Friday nights, 10 p.m. till midnight on WXOJ LP, Northampton 103.3 FM. There are everyday actions to help prevent the spread of respiratory diseases. Wash your hands. Avoid close contact with people who are sick. Avoid touching your eyes, nose, and mouth. Stay home when you are sick. Cover your cough or sneeze. Clean and disinfect frequently touched objects with household cleaning spray. For more information, visit cdc.gov COVID-19. 
This message brought to you by the National Association of Broadcasters and this station. Hey, this is Wendy, host of Valley Free Radio's subculture music program, featuring new wave, post-punk, indie, and electronic music from the 70s to today. Join me every Friday night from 8 to 10 p.m. here on WXOJ, or stream it live from your favorite listening device at valleyfreeradio.org. The Forbes Library staff would like to remind you of the incredible resource that you have in your local public library. We have tens of thousands of books for you to check out, music CDs, movies, newspapers from around the region, the state, and the country. We have a wide variety of magazines and free computer and internet access every day. We also have our incredible reference services there to help you answer particularly vexing problems. All of this is free, locally available at 20 West Street in Northampton. So come by and check us out in person or at www.forbeslibrary.org or call 587-1011 for more information. In our polarizing political climate, it's become difficult to find shows willing to discuss, much less listen to, different points of view. Our job is to talk about things we hope you'll find interesting without all the shouting. To disagree without being disagreeable. To provide incisive, factual commentary that cuts through the weekly spin cycle and aims to enlighten, not enrage, our listeners. So tune in for Civil Politics, Friday evenings at 7, here on Valley Free Radio, or anytime at civilpoliticsradio.com. Okay, we are back. You are still listening to Evidence-Based Radio. And as promised, we are going to turn to the subject of space. We are going to uh, move away and look into the stars. First off, let's talk about rumors of a signal from Proxima Centauri, our closest neighbor a red dwarf with two known exoplanets, one of which, Proxima Centauri b, resides in the habitable zone. It was found during a survey looking for signs of solar flares coming from the star, which could affect the habitability of the planet. The unmodulated signal is reported to be a narrow beam of 982 megahertz radio waves detected in April and May of 2019 at the Parkes Telescope in Australia. The Parkes is part of the $100 million Breakthrough Listen Project, a companion to the SETI project which is also looking for technological signals from beyond the solar system. It was found by Shane Smith, an undergrad at Hillside College in Michigan and an intern with Berkeley's SETI project. It appeared once, shifted slightly, and was not detected again, which they suggest makes it an unlikely, uh, makes the signal an unlikely uh, source coming from domestic craft or satellites. It's been compared to the 1977 WOW signal, which uh, we still don't know what that was, though we suspect it might have been something like a hydrogen cloud. Penn State University's Sophia Sheik, the lead analyst for the signal for Breakthrough Listen, notes, It's the most exciting signal that we've found in the Breakthrough Listen project. 
because we haven't had a signal jump through this many of our filters before, she told Scientific American, noting it has been named Breakthrough Listen Candidate 1, or BLC1, making it the first candidate signal in 10 years of the project. However, there is currently nothing to suspect that the signal is anything other than natural, and in fact, the team suspects there is a 99.9% likelihood that it is not alien. For instance, I mentioned it was unmodulated. This means that there was no complex information in the signal. It was basically a single tone. Now, it could have come from a comet or a hydrogen cloud or a number of other natural sources, but it's also possible the answer will be unknown origin. Now, it's definitely something not to get particularly excited about, though, for two distinct reasons. Proxima Centauri is a bad candidate for, intel for intelligent life, with its red dwarf star, a class of stars known for frequent solar flares, which is why they were looking at it, and the closeness of Proxima B to the sun, taking just 11 days to complete an orbit. Now, of course, I will once again reiterate that I definitely do believe that there are almost certainly other intelligent species out in the universe. Notice all of the qualifications there. <laughs> but I am particularly dubious of any idea that we'll be able to contact them or that they will ever travel to this particular solar system. Um, for one thing, there's nothing particularly uh, spectacular about this solar system from what we can tell, um, other than it has life, um, but that might be very common. Um, and so we don't really know why someone would want to come here and if they would ever have the capacity to come here. But I do keep an open mind, uh, despite the, uh, the real thing that gets me is the distances. I still think that the huge distances are an insurmountable hurdle uh, for me to believe that contact will ever be made because, for instance, Centauri B, uh, Proxima Centauri B is only about 4.1 light years away, which sounds really close, but it would take us thousands and thousands and thousands of years to get there. Um, if not millions, I, sorry, I didn't calculate it earlier, but, um, it's just infinitely far away, basically based on our current technology. Again, keeping an open mind, but yeah. And in fairness, let's talk about a weird and wonderful discovery that might help explain how potentially space travel can be made faster, at least to a point. We've known for a while about manifolds, hidden energy structures that emerge in space-time due to the gravitational interactions of massive objects like planets. Gravitational manifolds are simply a catalog of some unusual-looking free-fall paths through the solar system. This means paths where an object seems to fall, like Newton's apple, on a path dictated by gravity of a large object, said Shane Ross, a Virginia Tech University aerospace engineer who pioneered the study of these structures. We've used them to navigate the local neighborhood, and they could help us explain 
the currently mysterious behavior of comets and other small objects that flit in and out of the lo of this local corner of space-time. Now, Natasha Todorovic, a mathematician at the Serbian-Belgrade Astronomical Observatory and lead author of the new paper, describes how these manifolds have a new shape they've named Arches of Chaos. And in this case, I am not going to poo-poo the uh, naming convention because that's pretty fantastic. And so these form an unseen quote-unquote ornamental structure that evolves over decades. Todorovic, along with D. Wu and Aaron Rosengren, both engineering researchers at the University of California, San Diego, studied manifolds emanating from each planet's Lagrange points. These are points with the sun, where the gravities of the two objects combine to hold smaller objects in a fixed position in space relative to the planet. So basically, an object orbiting the sun at a Lagrange point would seem to be stationary from the planet's perspective due to the gravitational effect. They studied these manifolds by simulating the solar system and sending test particles through it, basically tiny imaginary spacecraft. As they ran the simulation, the paths followed by the spacecraft revealed the true shape of the manifolds emanating from the Lagrange points of planets such as the gas giants. Jupiter's manifolds created an arch shape with more chaotic manifolds surrounding a central, more orderly manifold. Every new year produces a new arch. Every new year uh, orbit of J Jupiter, I should say, um, not a Earth year because Jupiter has a much longer year. Um, and so every time it goes around the sun, it creates a new arch. And so those arches pile up over time. The manifolds likely explain the behavior of asteroids and comets, which tend to congregate around Jupiter before suddenly shooting off into deep space or descending into the inner solar system. They ran a hundred year simulation. And during that time, thousands of test particles passed through Jupiter's Lagrange points and changed course they either they many of them roaring out towards Neptune. Some completed the journey in under a decade. Again, manifolds are not a new discovery. The unique the unique aspect of our research, however, and what has hitherto not been observed, is the structure of this superhighway, or the full structure, Rosengren told Live Science. What is also revealed is the surprising depth to which the manifolds emanating from the neighborhood of Jupiter can permeate the solar system. And so this could actually help us speed up future space mission missions. It could allow them to use less fuel by calculating gravitational forces in a more complex manner than is currently applied in order to sort of ride these manifold uh, energies and get there easier. And, of course, I really should have a soundbite for saying, uh, though at this point it is actually a quote, 
More research is needed to understand the arch shape, Rosengred said, as to why they connect in such a beautiful pattern. Frankly speaking, we haven't the slightest idea yet. And of course, that yet is always important um, because there is always more to know and learn about these amazing structures. Um, and so, yeah, I am totally interested in that idea of these structures in the local fabric of time space, um, or space time, um, that might be exploitable. Uh, and so maybe that's the way that aliens could reach us. Um, I'm still not convinced, but who knows? I do try very hard to keep an open mind. And so, yeah. All right, let's move on to some more concrete things. Uh, we are going to talk about the results from two space missions that we've previously talked about. We're going to start with China's now-completed Chang'e 5 mission, the first to bring back samples from the moon in 44 years. China is now the third nation after the USSR and the United States to have directly obtained material from the moon. The capsule landed in Sizhuang Banner, just north of China's Inner Mongolian region, exactly where it was supposed to, and it completed a trip of 3,100 miles after separating from the orbiter above the sea. As previously noted, the lander bounced once off the atmosphere to reduce its speed and then parachuted to a safe landing. The samples will be transferred to specially designed laboratories for analyses, experiments, and tests so scientists can determine the extraterrestrial substance's composition, structure, and traits, thus deepening their knowledge about the history of the moon and the solar system. This is according to the China National Space Administration, or CNSA. A certain proportion of the samples will also be on public display to enhance science awareness among the public, especially young generations, sources close to the mission have said. Now, the lander portion of the mission was set down in Mons Rumker, an isolated volcanic formation in the Oceanus Procellarum region of the moon. This, this is a vast lava plain, which was likely created by an asteroid impact, but had been previously unexplored. The Chang'e-5's lander used a drill to pull 18 ounces of material from beneath the surface, and in addition, another 3.5 pounds of material were collected by a robotic arm. Once it had stowed its cargo, it became the first Chinese spacecraft to blast off from an extraterrestrial body. Now, it's expected that China will eventually try to launch astronauts into space and presumably to the moon and to continue to explore the solar system. What they probably won't be doing is sharing any of the samples with NASA. The 2011 Wolf Amendment prohibited direct cooperation with China. It's unfortunate that the countries themselves have deep problems that prevent them from sharing in scientific endeavors. And in fact, there was another recent bill which characterized many Chinese and also Russian, including the 
facilities that make the Soyuz rockets as um, basically suspect because they have military applications and therefore companies in the U.S. are not supposed to trade with them. Um, and so, you know, this is fraught. Uh, the U.S. has many faults and can be blamed for many things, um, but it does have a teensy-weensy bit of uh, sort of um, higher moral ground here, because uh, while it can be blamed for things like, frankly, many of the deaths from COVID-19 in this country and deaths like people who can't afford their insulin and who die on the streets because, again, we don't have a robust safety, social safety net. Uh, again, it can at least stand on the slightly higher moral ground of, for instance, not actively participating in a coordinated genocide of a group of people. Um, Muslim Uyghurs are being systematically eradicated for being insufficiently willing to conform to China's approved way of being. Um, and Russia is also doing lots of bad things because they're a major power with a large population of people who can be basically oppressed. Um, and so unfortunately, this isn't uh, unique to any of these countries, though the genocide, obviously, um, it, it's bad, and I didn't want to not talk about it, because um, I've talked about Chang'e 5 before, and I hadn't mentioned it, but I felt like I really should go on the record, obviously, um, to say that, you know, as much as I'm interested in their science, this is a real thing, and it is happening. Um, and unfortunately, like most modern of examples of communism, uh, the socialist dream falls far short in its execution. And I don't mean for that to be a bad pun, but it felt like the best word to use. Um, okay, so all that being said, let's move on to a less fraught example um, of examples from space, uh, from a mission that we've talked about uh, in the past. So the Japanese space agency has confirmed that dust and pebbles and even gas were collected by the Hayabusa 2 spacecraft, which has successfully returned to Earth. Now, this is the second successful return of materials from an asteroid. The first was the original Hayabusa probe, uh, which took materials from the asteroid Itakawa. This new material comes uh, from the asteroid Ryugu, which we've talked about uh, pretty extensively. The return of the gas was actually a first and is considered a pretty significant milestone, which absolutely. Uh, and the fact that they also gathered more material than they originally expected means that they can expand the amount of scientific exploration of the samples and may even allow them to share some of it with other experts, including those at NASA, because we have a good relationship with Japan. And of course, we do actually have our own samples, which should be coming back at some point in the nearest future, um, coming with the OSIRIS-REx um, project. So we do plan to get some ourselves. Okay. The Japanese Aerospace Exploration Agency, or JAXA, 
has now confirmed the samples with dark black, dark black grains in the first storage chamber, along with sandy material, pebbles, and gas from the asteroid in the second container. The pebbles were a particular triumph for the team, with JAXA scientist Hirotaka Sawada saying he was almost speechless at the site, according to the AP. The hope is that these samples will return us, will help us to learn more about the early solar system and how it formed. Researchers will also look for the possible presence of organic compounds. It could even shed light on how asteroids contributed to the early conditions on Earth, like the delivery of water. So one of the big ideas about how water ended up on Earth was that it was deposited by asteroids. And so finding water on asteroids and matching that water composition to water compositions on the Earth is something that uh, researchers are really interested in doing. And of course, obviously, the presence of organic compounds. We're still trying to figure out exactly how organic compounds uh, ended up on Earth, developed on Earth, and how life began. Um, because while we have really good ideas about how it might have done, we still don't have specific uh, knowledge. And so the spacecraft is actually also now currently awaiting a new mission, with JAXA considering sending it to the potentially Earth-threatening asteroid Apophis. Um, and so Apophis um, is big, around three football fields large, and there is a very small chance that it could hit the Earth in 2068. However, it will zip past at a close but safe distance in 2029, and researchers are already working on ways to study the asteroid and even potentially affect its trajectory. And so we will learn more about it as it gets closer. And so definitely not something to panic about now at this early stage in its trajectory. Um, it's definitely something that we still have time to deal with. And speaking of celestial impacts, uh, and with deference to the ideal that science should transcend politics, though uh, this is also a uh, wide topic for philosophical discussion, a new study suggests that the moon has a huge amount of previously unmapped craters. Using data from the Chinese lunar orbiters, an AI augmented program has detected more than 109 thousand new craters in the low and mid-latitude regions of the moon. The findings published in the journal Nature Communications increased the number of craters recorded on the moon's surface more than 12-fold. Lead author Chen Yang, an associate professor of earth sciences at Jilin University in China, noted that it represents the largest lunar crater database with automatic extraction for these regions of the moon. Impact craters can be hard to find because they can overlap, erode over time, and are ultimately subjective when using human identification. Yang and her team decided to use machine learning to circumvent some of this subjective nature. They trained a deep neural network with 
thousands of previously identified creators and taught the algorithm to search out and identify new creators. They then fed the data collected by Chang'e 1 and 2 into the program, which detected 109,956 newly mapped craters on the moon's surface. A substantial number are small to medium inside, though that's kind of a misnomer. Uh, they're still quite big from our perspective, ranging in size from 0.6 miles to 60 miles in diameter. But other, larger, irregularly shaped craters that had eroded were also discovered, with um, diameters up to 341 miles. The algorithm also estimated when around 19,000 of the craters were formed based on their size, diameter, and other features. And they found that some were up to 4 billion years old. The team hopes to expand the efforts with data from Chang'e 5 and to apply it to other bodies like Mars. This also gives uh, a bit of ammunition, actually, against the conspiracy theorists who say that the moon should have a lot more craters if it's as old as science claims it to be and if it's really up there, um, because there actually are people who believe that the moon is not real. Um, I wish I was making that up. I really do. Um, but there are, and they do, and it's very distressing, but um, yeah. Whew. All right, let us finish up tonight with circling back to the uh, far nature of the universe in terms of uh, distance. Researchers believe that they've found the oldest and furthest galaxy yet observed. Galaxy GNZ11 was detected by astronomers led by Nobunari Kashikawa, a professor in the Department of Astronomy at the University of Tokyo. From previous studies, the galaxy GN-Z11 seems to be the farthest detectable galaxy from us, at 13.4 billion light-years, or 134 nonillion kilometers. That's 134 followed by 30 zeros. Kashiwara said in a statement, but measuring and verifying such a distance is not an easy task. In order to pin down how far away the galaxy is, the team studied its redshift, how much its light has stretched out or toward the infrared section of the spectrum. The further away a cosmic object is from Earth, the more redshifted its light will be. The team also looked at gn Z11's emission lines, the chemical signatures in the light coming from the object. By studying the signatures, they were able to determine how far the light from GN-Z11 had traveled to get to them, the observers. We looked at ultraviolet light specifically, as that is the area of the electromagnetic spectrum we expected to find the redshifted chemical signatures, Kashikawa said. The Hubble Space Telescope detected the signature multiple times in the spectrum of GN-Z11. However, he added, even the Hubble cannot resolve ultraviolet emission lines to the degree we need it, so we turn to a more up-to-date, ground-based spectrograph, an instrument to measure emission lines, 
called Moss Fire, which is mounted to the Keck One telescope in Hawaii. Now, further confirmations will have to be done, as always, but it should cement the reign of GN-Z11 as the farthest galaxy ever observed, or even potentially observable. Because um, at some point, there may just be places that we can't observe because they're too far away. All right, so that is all the time we have for tonight. I hope that I didn't make you too sad on this Christmas evening if you did stick it out with me. Um, I do honestly hope that you will have a great and wonderful new year and that uh, things will get better. Um, and yeah, so uh, Merry Christmas if you celebrate Christmas. Um, happy holidays to everyone. Um, I know some of your some of the holidays have already passed. Uh, Hanukkah, for instance. Um, but if you celebrate uh, other things, um, please, well wishes to all of you is basically what I'm saying. And Happy New Year. Good night. Evidence-Based Radio is a member of the Planetside Podcast Network. To learn more, go to planetsidepodcasts.com. The theme song is Widgen by Bird Boy. Purchase the full song at smarturl.it slash birdboy.